0: Well, if you have a Bible, please grab it and open it up. We head back to the New Testament book of Acts and chapter 8, the beginning of chapter 8 this morning. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free to run back to the welcome table and grab one and keep it uh, for your own blessing and edification. We are continuing through this series, walking passage by passage through the book of Acts in a series that I have entitled, The Power to Change The world coming to understand more clearly than ever that Jesus is the only power among many much lesser and unimportant powers, the only one, the only one who can change the brokenness, uh, the hardness, the difficulties, the hurts that we see in our world. Here in Acts chapter 8, the first half at least, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 this morning, we get three very unique um, snapshots of things that are happening in the early church. The first Christians, right after the death, the the murder to be specific, of Stephen, uh, who we saw last week as the very first martyr, the very first Christian who is killed for being a Christian, for believing in Jesus, and specifically for talking about, for preaching uh, about Jesus. Um, these three snapshots that we get uh, from, uh, from Luke, the author of Acts, uh, they kind of come to me as, as like, man, I want to ask a little bit more about, uh, to God about these stories when I get to heaven. I can imagine, maybe you thought this way, when I get to heaven, there's going to be sort of a debrief room uh, where I can have a, a quick Q&A with uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and so, say, you know, so this story in the Bible, tell me more. Um, these three in particular are, are ones that I go, man, I tell me more. I want to know what happened. I want to know what was going on. Um, but even as I, I have that inquisitiveness, I can look at these stories, and we can look at them this morning and see that Luke, the human author, and God, the ultimate author of these passages, wants to teach us something about what it means to follow and trust in Jesus, particularly when really hard stuff happens. What we're going to see here is, is that following Jesus Christ in faith uh, will have its bumps and bruises, will have its suffering and its struggles, and in particular here we'll see persecution, but that following Jesus is perpetually a, a matter of repenting, and that's the Bible's word, not my word, repenting of our, our self-reliance or even our self-lordship and going, Jesus, it's, it's not about me, it is about you. I need to trust you. I need to turn back to you, your power, your wisdom. I need your forgiveness in my life. And so to that end, I've entitled my sermon this morning, It's Not About You. How's that? It's not about you. Um, So let's read together. I'm going to read all at once here, verse 1 all the way through 25, three distinct stories that Luke weaves together here, beginning in verse 1 our first story. to prison. Second story, verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Let that sentence sink in for a moment. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Third story, verse 9. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Notice that great is capitalized. They are attributing some form of deity to Simon. Verse 11, And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed dial back in here now, verse 18. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Spirit.' But Peter said to him, "'May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God.'" Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The word of God this morning, let's take a moment and let's pray to the author of this word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inerrant, infallible, inspired by your Holy Spirit, Lord, and we submit ourselves to its and In so doing, we submit ourselves to you this morning, Father. Teach us from your word, Lord. Let it not just be stories, but let it be application that changes our hearts and our minds. And, Father, we admit freely that we cannot change ourselves. And so we need you. We need your Holy Spirit. We need the work of your Son's grace in our lives. Lord, continue to change our hearts. Mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. And, Father, if any of us, our hearts be hard this morning, Lord, would you turn our hearts to you or turn our hearts back to you, this morning, King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Four ways this morning from these three stories, four ways to put our faith in Jesus on a daily basis. The first is this, and we see this very clearly in the first three verses, that first story, trust that God uses bad things for our good and His glory. Maybe easier said than done, but trust that God uses bad things for our good and His glory. As we jump into this story, recognize that these are some like historically bad times. These are some incredibly violent times specifically for the church uh, of Jesus Christ. What we saw last week, an angry mob gathers and literally executes a man in the street with no trial just because they hate him, just because he was telling people the good news of the gospel of Jesus. This is not a great time, one would think, to be a follower of Jesus. And Luke, who's wanting to express to us the severity of the situation, he chooses the word ravaged, that the church was being ravaged specifically by this man, Saul, and that men and women are being dragged off to prison. I think the sense here is that if there is any sort of low-level morality, any sort of cultural morality at all, Saul is not interested in it because he is grabbing not just men but women and throwing them into prison. These three verses show us a level of sadistic cruelty in Saul and those who would have been with him. It is what unchecked human depravity will always do as Saul is carrying out this violence against people who put their faith in Jesus. Um, he himself, Saul, who we will see very soon, God is going to change his life. His name becomes Paul. Uh, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, which Paul himself wrote, he actually confesses that he persecuted the church, and he says that he persecuted the church violently and that he tried to destroy it. So let us be clear about what his intentions were with Christians. Tertullian, who was one of the church fathers who lived in the second century uh, AD, said this very famously, "'The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church.'" "'The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church.'" Voice of the Martyrs, an organization and a magazine and publication, reminds us now to continually be praying for the 60 countries in our modern world who today, this morning, are dealing with government-led persecution, assault, attack, murder, or at the very least, some level of very distinct, clear hostility within that culture that says, because you are a Christian, we want you gone. Um, we are live streaming our, our church service this morning as we worship King Jesus, as we do every week. Um, I am not in the least concerned that the police are going to arrive after the service and drag Alana and I off to prison and beat us along the way. Um, there are a multitude of believers, maybe even the majority of Christians around the world, that that is their reality today, right now. And so with that reality, then we come to what's happening not just in Acts 8, but today, of Christians suffering for their faith, even dying for their faith. How do we how do we come to the conclusion that God is using all things for our good? Well, let's begin with a very important phrase, but God. But God. All of these awful things are happening and they are real, but God. And here in this passage, but God has a purpose in what is happening. God is using these awful circumstances to grow His kingdom, to grow His church, to grow the faith of His believers. He's going to use it for His glory and for those believers' good. Remember that the believers have already been commanded in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 among many places that they were to not just tell people about Jesus in Jerusalem. Where were they supposed to go? right from Jerusalem, do you remember what's next, to Judea and Samaria, and then where? Everywhere, right? To the ends of the earth. But here in Acts chapter 8, they have not moved. They have not moved. They have not obeyed, and they will not move until God steps in, And this is not just some sort of esoteric experience from a story from a long time ago. We ought to ask ourselves immediately, where am I resisting God's call to move out in faith, specifically to share the good news of Jesus? Where am I actively resisting God and saying, I'm going to stay within my safe comfort zone rather than saying, God, I trust you, even in a difficult circumstance that I'm going to walk with you through this? Put it another way, where is your life characterized by stubbornness towards God rather than obedience? In the counseling world, in the Christian counseling world, it is said people don't change until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of changing. I think on a human level that's very true. But God... God was moving the gospel beyond Jerusalem, as He has already promised in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, and now we see it moving into this place called Samaria that in some ways is right down the street, but with amazing spiritual power. We are told here right off the bat that lost people who are living in darkness are now hearing and believing the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand that the people of Samaria, known as Samaritans, as we've talked about before, Samaritans and Jews don't like each other. In fact, they hate each other. Samaritans are essentially half Jewish, and by this point in human history, they have had 600 years of animosity and hatred and racism and anger and misunderstanding God's covenant blessings to dislike each other. And God has now sent Philip in his goodness and grace to those people, and the gospel message is breaking through. And what it is doing is it is breaking down all kinds of societal barriers, it is breaking down ethnic barriers, it is breaking down sin barriers, and people are believing the gospel of Jesus. God is good and sovereign, meaning He's in total control even in our, even in your suffering. Sometimes we can see the reasons. Oh, God, I can see you brought this for this awesome reason. And that's wonderful. Sometimes we can't. Okay, there will be many times in our lives where we will go, God, I don't understand why you did this. And you may never this side of glory. But we can go, Lord, I don't understand it. But I understand you enough to know that you are good and you are in control. And so even though I don't like this, I will trust you. The evidence of this among many places in Scripture is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is an incredibly important chapter in the Bible and that one that we should go to often, not just when things hurt, but all the time. And I want to read to you a part of it to remind us of the heart-pounding realities that we get here. Starting in eight, chapter 8 and verse 28, it says this, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. This entire chapter is important. I'm not elevating one over the other, but what I want to point you to specifically now is verses 35 through 39. Listen to what it says and how it relates to this story this morning. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, it's exactly what they're experiencing, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So yes, people are dying for the faith. God, how could you use this for good? Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth nor COVID, nor politics, nor hurting, nor broken marriages, nor neglect, nor anything else, my words, not God's, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? In Christ, this is saying every persecution, every crisis, every struggle, every pain, every suffering, every injustice, God is using it for your good. If you are in Christ, meaning you are a believer, He is using it for your good and His glory, and His kingdom's growth. If we let that promise, that reality, soak deeper into our hearts, do you think that it would impact our boldness to share the gospel with others and maybe help us overcome the the very natural fears that we have of, what if I talk about Jesus? What's going to happen to me? I think it would. When we let this soak in, trust that God uses bad things for our good and His glory. Number two, and our second story that that weaves in together, number two, turn difficult circumstances into opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Take those difficult circumstances and by God's grace, use them to talk about the good news of Jesus. And we see this here in that second sort of story, verses four through eight, which begins with, I think, the most important line. It says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, so what's happening? The more that Saul tries to silence the gospel, the more it succeeded. The more believers are persecuted, the more they proclaim the good news of the gospel. The more they were scattered, the more the seeds of the gospel were planted. The Greek word for scattered here, and this is important, it doesn't mean haphazard chaos. The Greek word here for scattered means planting chaos of seeds, right? When the farmer goes out and scatters, sows, tosses his seeds, there is an intentionality here. Uh, Me and my girls yesterday, we took little bean, green bean seeds, and we placed them into a little bucket, and we put water in them. And we'll see if here in Florida, January and February, if they're going to sprout. But there was an intentionality as we poked each little bean into the pot. That is what God is doing as He scatters the seed seed. Now, let's take it a step further. God's planting seed. We refer to ourselves as a church plant. Why? Well, because of this, because of stories like this in the Bible, right? So what may appear to be chaos God has orchestrated for good, God has scattered us intentionally, lovingly, wisely, and placed us, He has scattered us to Bayside High School, he has scattered us to Palm Bay, Florida, United States of America in 2022. Difficult circumstances? Sure. But He has scattered us so that the gospel would be planted in this city, that the truth of Jesus Christ would take root in this city, that it would be manifested in this city, and that the result would be that people believe and follow Jesus. In other words, that there is fruit, that there are string beans for Jesus all over the place here in this city. We are a church church plant, and we have been scattered by God to that good work. How do we do it? The Bible here uses the word preaching and proclaiming. Preaching, formally uh, and informally, or proclaiming, is God's method to reach the world. The Greek word for preach in verse 4 is the word evangelize, We use the word evangelize to talk about sharing the gospel with other people. The Greek word for proclaim in verse 5 is the word herald, to announce, to declare, to share in an amazing way the good news. Preaching and proclaiming, it's, it's what I am doing right here this morning, but it is also what you and I do every time we have a conversation with anybody where we are telling people intentionally about the good news. We're scattering the seed of the gospel it is not just what the pastor does. It is not just what the super spiritual people over there would seem to do. It is what we are called to do. Uh, We ought to often come back to Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, which says this, He, that is the Lord, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip the saints for the works of ministry, Is this some sort of Catholic thing? Are special saints? Have I been sainted? No, 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 no. Saints means all believers. So all of us, God has called the shepherds, the pastors to equip all of us so that we can all go out and do the works of ministry for building up the body of Christ, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 4. This guy, Philip, in this story, this is not Philip the Apostle. There is Philip the Apostle. This is Philip the Deacon. This is a number one, another one of the seven men, like Stephen, who were called to be the first deacons in the New Testament church to specifically care for the widows who were in need of care in the city of Jerusalem. He's a regular dude. We are all regular dudes and ladies, men and women. We are all on the same platform here in Christ. Uh, for Philip, he's also a refugee in an incredibly hostile place against the gospel, He wasn't there because he wanted to be. He was there because persecution drove him to Samaria. He's there because his friend just got killed for talking about Jesus. And what is his response? I'm going to talk about Jesus. Notice that they didn't scrap uh, preaching and evangelism because the culture pushed back. That's informative for us today. They didn't go, you know what, this method doesn't really seem to be working. Let's come up with something different. It didn't. Why? Well, in the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So no, I will not stop talking about Jesus because I believe that he's going to use even my suffering for my good and I believe that the power of the gospel changes lives now and eternally and I want people to know. So I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. And what's the result? It says there was joy in the city. Did you catch that? Verse 8. It says there was joy, real joy, in this city that previously did not know God. I want to be a Philip. I want to go wherever he sends me to go, regardless of whether or not it's uncomfortable, and just say, God, it's not about me. It's not about my eloquence. It's about you and your power, and you can change lives, so use me wherever and however you want, to share the good news with real people, with real words. And people heard and they believed and they were saved. It says, in fact, here in Acts, that people were healed, demons were cast out, lives were changed in every sense by the power of God and a humble servant who said, use me where you have planted me. Guys, I want to see joy in our city. As you think about our city, Every street, every situation, would you characterize it as one filled with joy? I would not yet. Why? We want to see our city made new by the gospel. We say in one sentence, that is the vision of our church, to see our city made new by the gospel, that they would, that we would experience the joy of Jesus. I want us as a church to experience greater and greater joy and power in our worship, together of King Jesus. I want to see Bayside High School and the other schools that we partner with in every school in this county, that the staff and the students there would know Jesus personally and experience joy. I want to see families where marriages are broken, that they would be restored, and that husbands and wives who are angry against each other would come back together, that children who are isolated and ignored and not cared for, that by the gospel, that they would be cared for, that families would be restored, that there would be love and care and respect. Rather than anger and hatred and abandoning and distance, the gospel can do those things when it changes us inwardly, when the Holy Spirit fills our lives. I want to see the kind of revival that we read about in the pages of of men like Jonathan Edwards, who I've mentioned in the last several weeks, 250 years ago, in this country, thousands of people coming to Christ. There was joy in the city, and that is our desire and our vision, that there would be joy in this city and around the world. The way that Acts chapter 8 paints it, amen? We want to see Jesus do what only he can do. Number three, how do we walk in faith with Jesus daily? Number three is this, the beginning now of our third story where this character Simon comes into play. Admit your own weakness and take up the Holy Spirit's power. How are we going to conquer the world? I'll do it. No. (laughs) No. When we're young, we think, yeah, I'll do that. And then when we get older, we go, nope, I can't. Number three, admit your own weakness and take up the Holy Spirit's power. We see this specifically in verses 9 through 13. Simon is going to show us what our unredeemed hearts believe, which is essentially, I am the greatest. I remember another guy who who walked around town 50 years ago declaring that same statement: I am the greatest. It's not true of either one of them, it's not true of us. We're not the greatest. Simon's magic uh, was inherently deceptive, okay? Uh, This is not, when we go to a restaurant sometimes, what's the restaurant we go to where the the magician comes and when we go to Long Dogger's, maybe you've been to Long Dogger's, uh, on the weekend there's a little magician, he'll come out, he'll do some tricks and our kids love it. Uh, No problem with magic tricks, guys. That's not what's happening here, to be clear. Um, The Bible doesn't tell us if Simon is involved in sleight of hand or if this is like demonic level deception. But it does make it clear that he is a liar and that he's using his power over people to promote himself and and literally communicating to them that he is some sort of a god. That is the idea taking place here. Verse 9 and 10, quote, he himself was somebody great and, quote, this man is the power of God that is called Great, capital G. He held great control over this city with his manipulation using fake power. We can think of other people in our lives who do the same thing. We, we manipulate with power. We control people, and that is what Simon is doing here to an entire city. Simon is the exact opposite of Philip. Simon's power is not real. Philip's power is absolutely real, but he wields it in humility by declaring up front, it's not my power, it's Jesus' power and he uses it to restore and to heal and to point people to Jesus. And so, the Bible says that previously people were paying attention to Simon, now they're paying attention to King Jesus. Not paying attention to to Philip, paying attention to Jesus. As belief in Jesus for us today, Christian or not Christian, belief in Jesus means repenting of our self-glory, of our self-lordship, of our self-reliance, and putting our faith afresh in Him. It's not about me. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul gives us this exact same idea, and he's, he's talking about it in the context of him being a preacher, of him being a leader of God's people. He says this, "'And I, when I came to you, brothers,' Did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. That's how he describes himself, weakness, fear, trembling. It's okay to describe yourself that way. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Don't put your faith in me. Put your power in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Faith means acknowledging I can't do it. Faith in Jesus means admitting it's not about me. And there is nothing harder in the human condition than admitting that reality because we are born thinking it's all about me and I can do it myself. The gospel says the exact opposite. Trust means admitting our weakness. And weakness is a word I want to dial into for a second. It it means admitting my weakness. It means being filled with a new reality that Jesus is the greatest, not me, and that Jesus is for me. Jesus is the greatest and Jesus is for me. And all I have to do to receive that amazing blessing is ask for it. Um, Guys, I... Talking about me here personally, pastoral moment. I cannot lead this church on my own. Me just make the incredibly obvious, fully stated. I cannot lead this church on my own. I cannot do it without Jesus and his power, his strength, his wisdom, his glory. And I cannot do it without each of you. I can't do it. I am weak. In case you thought I was strong, I'm weak. I can't do it. It is a profound joy to be able to say, "I'm weak." Somebody asked me recently, "Where does weakness fit into your life?" And I said, "I don't have time for weakness." And he's like, "That's not the right answer." I'm weak, and I need Jesus. Um, I'm repenting of my own self-reliance. I hope you are too. Uh, it is an ongoing process. It's not something that we somehow master this side of glory, but I need Jesus. In Acts 8, God is squeezing his people to show them you can't do this by yourself. Okay? In 2021 and 2022, God is squeezing me, and I hope he's squeezing you, saying we cannot, I cannot, you cannot do this yourself. The enemy is too great, but I have not left you alone to figure this out by yourself. God says to us, I am your Father. I gave you my Son, and I have given you my Holy Spirit. Let's make it about me again for a second. Um, Two and a half years of church planting and all of the challenges and struggles that are inherent, uh, I'm weak. Um, Our our first full-time hire on staff here at our church uh, not working out is hard. This stuff is hard. Planting a church in a pandemic that nobody expected and all that goes with that is hard. Planting in a time when it seems like our culture here in the United States is running away from God is hard. I need Jesus, um, and, and I need you. We need each other. Um, I don't like being squeezed. It's not comfortable. But I believe that God is doing it for me and for us for our good. I trust that about Him. And what I can tell you right now, I can't give you all the answers, but I can tell you he is unwriting the inner narrative of my heart, which my heart has been born believing I must do it myself. Do you think that way? That's the inner automatic narrative of my heart. I must do it myself. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's not the truth. Uh, Jesus is giving me a new one. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones, and I'm one of them, to Him belong. I am weak. He is strong. Amen? I hope that you are experiencing this same discomfort, this loving discomfort from God that I am. It is a good thing. And I will challenge you, if you are not experiencing that discomfort, then God is inviting you to get in the game to follow him by faith, and to be used by God outside of your comfort zone and whatever you feel like is comfortable, to be used to plant the gospel into this church, this city, and ultimately this world. Do not sit on the sidelines any longer. Philip trusted in God's power, and so can we. Philip faced crisis. He didn't run from it. He faced it. I don't know if it was fear of man or fear of speaking up or maybe uh, he disliked the Sumerians and didn't want to go there and had the same cultural prejudice that his entire community had, but he went, pushed through those things and he evangelized faithfully. And it says, the Bible says that the crowds paid attention, that they believed, that they were saved, that they were healed in every sense, and that they were baptized. And this is only what the power of God can do. Ken prayed, we need the Holy Spirit to change hearts. That's absolutely right. I cannot change a heart. I can't even change my own heart, but God, by His Holy Spirit, can. And so that is our prayer and our desire. And we begin by admitting, I am weak, but He is strong. Fourth and finally, the the end of this story about Simon is this. Number four, turn to Jesus in real repentance. Believer, unbeliever, Wherever you are on your faith, I've been a Christian for five minutes or I've been a Christian for 50 years. Turn to Jesus in real repentance. And we see this in verses 14 through 25 in this, this wild moment here with Simon. Simon makes a public profession of faith. Simon is publicly baptized even, but we see clearly by the end of the story that it is not a genuine conversion of his heart. Coming forward and saying, I'm a Christian, even coming forward and being baptized does not make you a Christian. What we see is his heart on display, and what he does is this. He's still focused on his own glory, isn't he? He's still focused on his own power, and he wants to regain power so that he can do the magic show thing even better. Instead of asking for the Holy Spirit, right, it's, Holy Spirit, help me, lead me, guide me. I need your power in my life. He says, can I buy the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you know, to this day, his name is used to express that. When you try to buy a role in a church, when you try to buy a church office, this was especially true in the Middle Ages, the word is simony, the buying of church office. His name is the definition of that thing. Philip had real power from God, and Simon was jealous, and so he tried to buy God's power. But it is not about going through the motions of Christianity. It's about coming to the end of yourself and knowing that you need Jesus personally. Sitting in a garage does not make you a car. Sitting in church does not make you a Christian. But sometimes we can have that Simon way of thinking. On the contrary, it is repenting of your sin, confessing your desperate need for Jesus, and finding salvation and strength in Jesus alone that makes you a believer. Simon's response here is very telling. He gets this really, really strong call to repentance, right? Peter is not mincing words. Peter is not gentle. Peter does not tend to be gentle anywhere in Scripture. And Simon's response is basically nothing. Do you see that? Peter says, among other things, pray and talk to God. And Simon says, you pray. You pray for me. I'm I'm not doing that. I'm not talking to God. What he literally does here is he passes the buck to his pastor. You be spiritual for me. You do stuff for me. See, repentance involves taking responsibility. Would you describe our culture presently in the world as one that loves to take responsibility? No, we run from it. And Simon is no different. Simon does the same. He refuses responsibility. Do not pass the buck for your own spiritual growth to anyone. We often will pass it on to our wife or to our husband. You do spiritual growth for me. Or as children or sometimes as adults, we will pass it on to our parents. You do following Christ for me. Or we'll pass it on to our pastor or someone else from the church. You do spiritual stuff for me. I'm not interested in doing it yourself. But let me say this, if you are sinning, and you are because you're a human like me, look to the only one who can solve your problems, not you, not Oprah, not someone to pass the buck to, look to King Jesus. Take responsibility by asking Him to take responsibility into your life. Turn to Jesus in repentance. Peter's call to repentance is for Simon, and it is for us. So Peter's words again they are firm, but he tells the truth. He says, "May your silver perish with you." I might try that next Sunday. "May all the money that you have in the bank burn and may you burn with it." This is what he said. He he means it. That's a harsh truth, but he's not untrue in what he is saying. He doesn't just give truth though, and this is instructive for us. He gives grace as well. His answer, Peter's words are filled with grace because he says that the problem that you have is a heart problem. Turn your heart over to Jesus. And then he explains how to do that, to to receive the free gift of the gospel. He says, Peter says, you have no part in this because your heart is not right before God. You cannot fake relationship with God. Did you know that? You cannot fake it. You can live a good life, You can obey the rules, or at least the rules that people see. You can do all the things. You can tithe and attend church and care for the poor and serve in ministry. You can even get up here and preach, but it does not make you a believer. You can even do miracles, but you cannot fake out Jesus. He knows your heart better than you do, and He longs to see your heart forgiven. Peter says to Simon, you're full of bitterness. and You're captive to sin. That is not a repentant believer. He says, you haven't yet experienced freedom. Have You ever been there? Maybe you're there now. I know our kids are coming in, but I want us to take a minute and think about this. Is that where you find yourself? Faking it. Concealing hidden sin. Inwardly broken inside. Ashamed. As Jesus knows already, there's nothing you can surprise him with. Peter says, if that's you, here's what you should do. And he gives... In this case, he gives four very simple things to do. He says, first, repent. It means turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. Not do better, try harder, and and fix yourself, and and stop doing bad things. He's saying, recognize that the things that you run to will not solve the problems in your life. Turn to Jesus instead. That's real action. It's heart level. It's inward, not outward, and it's ongoing. Repent. Then he says, pray. Talk to God. He's listening. He's available right now in this room. 24 7, Jesus is available to hear from you. And that prayer ought to be two things admit you're a sinner and ask for forgiveness. And those are the two things that Peter says that Simon ought to do. Simon says, now, admit you are a sinner. Admit your weakness. Admit your need for His power. Sin is bitterness and captivity. Sin, I've heard it said, sin is a prison cell locked from the inside. Get the illustration there? Sin is a prison cell locked from the inside. Not coming out. Ask for forgiveness. Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Jesus, unlock the cell that I every day lock. Give me new life. Admit you're a sinner, ask for forgiveness, and he will do it. The answer to the prayer, please forgive me of my sins, is always yes from Jesus. Let's take a minute and let's pray to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right now.